Hello, and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am the other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And today we are coming at you with a brand new poem. Uh, Good news, good times, good vibes, close talking, back at it again. Um, Today's poem is called America Mine by Sasha Banks. And America is all lowercase letters. And then there's a comma and mine is all uppercase letters. So you can't hear that because it's audio. And no matter how hard we try, you never quite know how the uppercase and lowercase is coming across. But that is the title of the poem. I'm pretty excited about this one. Feeling good. It's also the title of, I believe, Sasha Banks' first collection of poetry, America Mine, which was published in 2020. Yeah, Yeah. it came out in April of 2020. And obviously, many of the poems were written in the years preceding that. And uh, her work was lauded in in the years preceding that. She's sort of a combination poet activist which you know we love on this program um so she organized a 24-hour poets for ferguson reading in 2014 she was featured on the pbs news hour for a lot of her poetry and activism work and her melding of the two in 2016 Um, and i think when we read the poem you'll hear about kind of the the many contemporary resonances of something that came out a couple years ago that feels you know just as connected to the present moment as it did then and as it would have years before that because Sasha Banks is one of those great folks who's been thinking about and writing about um, issues particularly around race and the United States and its history uh, for a long time Uh, and actually that is how she and her poetry came to my attention because I was helping with some community conversations that were uh, being done at a at the theater here in Bennington after productions of a play and during one of the talkbacks that I was facilitating I had brought up the poem that we talked about a little while ago uh could we please give the police departments to the grandmothers again a poem inspired by the uprisings in Ferguson the conversation was sort of around like what how do we imagine something that's 
different from the present situation and i had brought up in that context could we please give the police departments to the grandmothers and one of the audience members actually mentioned that sasha banks was another poet who um, kind of does similar imaginative work and i think that that's definitely present in this poem and also you know i've gone on to read some of her other poems and she also writes essays she has a great essay from uh in the atlantic called patriotism isn't an option which is a really uh wonderful look at her kind of non-poetic writing um, but a lot of it is grounded in this idea of imagining different futures and and having that as kind of a groundwork for different kinds of activism. So very cool stuff. Yeah. And uh, this poem, America Mine, also appeared in a in 2016. Um, it was published in The Collagist, uh, which is a poetry and literary journal. Um, so that's just another another reference point. Yeah. Should we read the poem? Yeah, let's get into the poem. So this is America Mine by Sasha Banks. The spit upon this country's flag is mine, and I do not weep at it. Consider the twisted shape of grief about the mouth upon learning the beast under the bed has always been your country. Careful, citizen. This nation will name you daughter, while its tongue sucks the muscle from every dark body you have loved to the edge of this vanished second. I let the rage be like water this time, drinking and drinking until my darkness marries my eyes to blindness and I am led by the ghosts still awake in the soil, still thirsty from below. The fear is under my heel now, there are multitudes in my third rib, and we are not asking any more. Do you see us now? This is the last kindness. We will have your sweat and dress you in your own curses. Oh, country, what I mean to say is all the living after this will be the vengeance. I love this poem. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, and it's got so many different things going on in it, but I think just because we're an audio medium and we mentioned the way that the title is presented, um, and I think I'm thinking about this cause I just read it. Um, it is a poem that because of how it is presented on the page invites many different kind of phrasings and readings and intonations, um, because it's presented kind of as a, I mean, it has actual line breaks and and I'm reading this from what appeared in the collagist I'm not reading from the actual collection um but it has actual line breaks it's not presented as like a prose poem but then it also has line breaks indicated with slashes throughout it and those can indicate different ways of reading it so for example the last line just because I just read it what I mean to say is all the living after this will be the vengeance the way that that looks on the page is what I mean to say slash is slash all the living after slash this slash will be the vengeance. So you could read that as what I mean to say is all the living after this will be the vengeance. Or what I mean to say is all the living after this will be the vengeance. And I don't know that in that instance, it leads to a, a totally different 
message, but it has a different feeling to it. And there are quite a few instances of that throughout the poem that it would probably be tedious to try and go through in too much detail, again, as an audio medium, but we always make sure the poem's included in the show notes. So as we're talking about this and as we're thinking about it, um, you know, obviously we always encourage everyone to read the poem and to read it aloud for yourself. Um, and this is one where I think that's even more kind of uh, imperative in terms of finding your own different ways of of reshuffling what makes sense as a as a reading. And I think it's it's just an interesting kind of element that adds a whole other layer to this to this poem. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, in in a similar way that poems that have a somewhat more quote unquote traditional lineation or line breaks um, can sort of create some sort of like uh, ambiguity um, in the ways that they mess with the line and the sentence together. And we did, you know, it's, it's interesting to read this. Now we talked about line breaks at length uh, this April um, during our national poetry month week. Um, and this is kind of, uh, I don't know exactly where it came from. It's all of its origins, but it's, it's definitely a style that has increased in prominence, um, over the past 10 years or so. And, and you're absolutely right that it, that it's a kind of a more in, in a way it's an intensification of of the ambiguity that line breaks and already are kind of um, providing. Well, and then this and, poem, it, it almost yeah. entirely replaces other punctuation. I think there might be one comma in the whole thing, which is between careful and citizen, which are themselves, those two words are offset by slashes. So that's one little contained thing. Other than that, and obviously like apostrophes on certain words or whatever. I think all the punctuation in the poem is slashes, which traditionally indicate a line break. Um, so in addition to the line breaks, every time you're being indicated that there's a pause or a shift of any kind, it is with the intensity of a line break. So it's an intensification and it's a consistent intensification in this poem. Yeah, I would say kind of thinking about it because it, it's I'm really glad that you brought that up in the beginning because in some in some ways there there is a pretty clear at least on one level meaning um that's coming through that i think is 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 like pretty immediately conveyed in the poem um you know the the spit upon this country's flag is mine and i do not weep at it and there's this kind of sense and and Sasha Banks has talked about this. There was a interview that she gave with uh, PBS, I believe, uh, several years ago. And and it's similar to the the kind of patriotism is not an option, but there, there's a certain righteous fury and contempt for the legacy of the United States, particularly when it comes to, you know, anti-black racism and not just the historical legacies of of slavery and jim crow but it's the, the continuing mass incarceration and police brutality um which you know as as we kind of in our introduction to um sasha banks this a lot of her work that came to prominence was in direct response to 
the murder of Michael Brown um, in Ferguson. And, and so I think, you know, there's a lot of, and, and I think like something that I, that really resonated with me and, and it's interesting to read this now because Ferguson in 2014 was, was also a very formative moment in my own kind of political consciousness or whatever. Um, and not to like get into that too much, but it, it was, you know, there, there had been lots of organizing and activism about, I mean, police brutality forever, forever, forever. Um, and then in the, you know, in the, the years, you know, there was the killing of, um, Trayvon Martin and, um, but then things did really hit another peak of organizing and activism after Ferguson. And you get the kind of national rise of the black lives matter movement. Um, and, um, and that kind of the spirit of a lot of that, um, you know, was reached another kind of crescendo in the uprising after the murder of George Floyd. Um, <clears throat> just kind of bringing that all, but it, you know, cause I was thinking about another, like another part in the beginning, you know, there's that kind of like, I'm spitting on the country's flag. Right. So that's kind of the first image you get. Um, and, but like, consider the twisted shape of grief about the mouth upon learning the beast under the bed has always been your country. Um, and I think about that a lot because there's this kind of deliberate, um, and it, it was very, it was felt a lot. <laughs> it's just, I'm getting a lot of memories, but our very first episode of the podcast was like right after the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And there was this kind of like, Oh my God, how could America do such a thing? And one thing that I remember we were talking about was how a lot of like organizers and activists and writers of color and black writers and all this stuff were like, we've been saying this is here and a problem. Um, and like Ferguson was like 2014. Um, and, and so there's that, that kind of like, has always been your country, this kind of like reveal to white America or whatever, that's not, um, is more of a reveal than a change in a way kind of saying all that, like there's a lot more in this poem. Um, but thinking about those elements and then the, the kind of the use of the slashes is very powerful in a particular way. And one, one way that it just occurred to me is like the spit on this country's flag is mine and I do not weep at it. That's kind of like a complete thought to a certain extent, but like there's a slash after and, and there's a slash after do. So it's like the spit upon this slash country's flag is mine and slash I do slash not weep at it. Um, and I was just thinking about how it doesn't sort of like create a totally alternate meaning, but what it does do is like, it emphasizes the do. And it's like, it's not just like, I'm not weeping. It's not just like the speaker's not sad <laughs> that uh, their spit is on the country's flag. It's like they're actively not weeping. You know, it's like it it calls attention to the the I do not weep at it. Um, so I was just I do think there's there's a lot of kind of emphasis 
that the the slashes kind of posing as line breaks are are doing a lot of work to bring out in this one. Definitely. You mentioning that question of the action in I do not weep at it is such a, a powerful statement. And then following it up with consider the twisted shape of grief about the mouth upon learning the beast under the bed has always been your country. Maybe that's talking about the speaker. Maybe as you're saying, it's sort of this call out to all the folks who are continually awakening to the reality that many have been trying to sound the alarm, the, you know, those who are already spitting on the flag in some sense, or, you know, acting against entrenched power structures, and then seeing others finally kind of wake up to it. Um, it reminds me of, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, because it, I think it's just such an important framing of how to kind of think and talk about not only this and not only race in the United States, but just in general, when you're learning about new modes of activism or new critiques of existing structures when he was on the Dick Cavett show. And I don't remember the exact lead into it. And literally he says, this is new to you. It's not new to me. And I think that that's such an important thing to keep in mind, particularly, you know, we're two white guys around issues of race in the United States, but also any new area of activism or progressive work that you're doing or that you're becoming involved with, remember that it might be new to you, but it's not new to many of the folks who have been doing it for a long time. It is very, very rare that you are one of those ground level people who's actually starting whatever that movement or action is. And honestly, it's probably tied into some pretty long histories, even if you know it hasn't been happening in the area where you are. Um, but I think the other reason that I'm drawing that Baldwin reference is that in this poem, there's the the I think the allusion to um certainly to the song, you know, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water but fire next time. Um, where in the poem it says, I let the rage be like water this time, drinking and drinking until my darkness marries my eyes to blindness. And because the end of the poem is future looking, it's interesting to me because i don't know if i would go so far as to say it's a subversion of saying it'll be the fire next time but it's this interesting spin on the notion of vengeance and what could be seen as the fire um the seeds of which are sown in that call out there to say you know i let the rage be like water this time you know james baldwin's book is the fire next time that's what the the reference is and that itself is a quote from an essay in the book that's drawing from a song that's a very old line that's in a couple of different songs that were originally like slave songs and there's also other spiritual songs that have used that couplet um but because the end is you know all the living after this will be the vengeance um is sort of an interesting spin on what quote unquote the fire next time might look like like what will be the rage the rage is like water this time but what comes next and I think in some ways that's also an echo of the title, America Mine, What Happens When the Country is Mine. All the living after this will be the vengeance is, to me, a very sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say constructive because that seems stupid. Um, it's like it's, it points toward, I, you know, I want to build something different. You know, it's not just about the kind of cleansing fire that will burn away sin or whatever, you know. 
um, in the kind of righteous sense, but it's more about living and being able to do all the things that the current system restricts or deprives. And there's so much language around restriction and deprivation and, you know, it sucks the muscle from every dark body and it's this kind of gluttonous creature feeding on, you know, in darkness and it's just awful. And so it's about the living after. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, that really seems, seems to be hitting on something. Um, it re reminds me of, there was a, a review of Sasha Banks's collection in, okay, I'm always going to mispronounce it. I think it's the adroit journal, but maybe it's the adroit journal, but maybe it's something else. I don't know. I've heard one person say that, but to me, it's adroit. I've always said adroit, but all it all takes right. is one person. No, I... French pronunciation, and you're like, oh my god, is it La Croix? Is it La Croix water? <laughs> Am I drinking Pamplemousse La Croix? Okay, then it's then it's adroit. Excellent. <laughs> um, the only reason I thought it might be is because sometimes the adroit journal. I'm like, okay, maybe you do think of yourselves as the adroit journal, but anyway. Quand um, I drink yeah. my La Croix and read my adroit, <laughs> n'est-ce pas? Yeah, no, that. Well, it really reminds me of um, this review of Sasha Banks's collection. Um, in the review was in the Adroit Journal, um, and something they the reviewer writes is Banks's America Mine, the collection uniquely captures an Afrofuturism simultaneously defined, enriched and liberated by its fluid temporality. Banks's debut expertly takes the nebulous concept of freedom to task by inhabiting multiple time periods, spaces, and ancestral voices to portray both the breadth and complexity of the future to which its author aspires. Liberation, Banks's poems argue, does not lie in a future that offers blackness supremacy, but rather in one that promises blackness the latitude necessary to evolve, which to me really seems to be very resonant with the end of this, this particular poem, you know, and, and all the living after this will be the vengeance. Um, and, and something that I think, you know, and we talked a little bit about Afrofuturism generally, when we talked with Len Lawson and his, um, that amazing anthology um, and his poem in it. And one kind of element of it is, you know, it, it's obviously has many, many multitudes, um, but there is an element of this kind of defiant black joy um, and defiant life and living and thriving that is its own kind of vengeance against the kind of um, white supremacy that this this country is is hell-bent on um enforcing and and i do feel that it, it really carries through because i i feel like the this kind of final turn in the poem happens and we are not asking anymore do you see us now this is the last kindness we will have your sweat and dress you in your own curses oh country what I mean to say is all the living after this will be the vengeance, um, which 
the kind of that final line is sort of a, a a version of the of rephrasing of like this is the last kindness we will have your sweat and dress you in your own curses oh country at least i mean it's a totally different thing but the what i mean to say that comes next is like i am <laughs> it provides that direct linkage of the two it's like well uh, what i'm this is what i'm you know you you get what i'm where i'm going with this <laughs> kind of yeah. situation yeah you know? yeah yeah um no which is it's it's marvelous um and i and i do love to thinking of it as as a kind of kindness too um like saying this is the last kindness that's such an interesting um i think that there's it's just it, it's interesting and and you probably know more about this than I do but you know vengeance as a concept in like media and it's like such a such a theme of American movies in a totally different kind of way you know it's like often a a very uh, white man kind of vengeance it's not a sustaining vengeance um, there's many things to say about it but this is just a different like there's living in this vengeance there's kindness in this vengeance um there's not weeping in it i don't know i i, I just i i was thinking about that as a as a kind of counter writing to the the kinds of stories of vengeance and emotions of vengeance that were sort of usually exposed to in the, in the wider movie land <laughs> or whatever. No, I, that's so interesting because you know what? I got so sucked into some other elements of this poem. I did not even go down that road, even though it is one of my ongoing <laughs> <laughs> sort of, you know, low key cultural history obsessions um, because there is this notion in a lot of media in the United States and some of the really deep narratives that make up what is usually defined as you know, American literature, some of the earliest elements. And by that, you know, the definition is really around white colonists and their experience of the quote unquote new world. And the European comes to the wilds of America and he goes into the wilderness and meets with native peoples and comes back changed. And he is now of both worlds and blah, 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 blah. You know, there's all this stuff. Um, but vengeance is a huge element of those stories uh, in in a lot of instances, and the the great American genre is the Western, and so much of the Western is based around violent revenge, and through the transformative power of violence. But yeah, I mean, revenge is such an element of what happens in a lot of stories, and usually vengeance tied to justified and righteous violence. And you see these stories play out in national politics all the time for anyone our age and a little bit older. We lived through it after 9-11. Uh, that is what happened. There are these deep cultural kind of roots to tap into when you want to push the country to war and create a narrative around justified violence. The example I would give as a recent example of just how baked in these narratives are and how they can go unexamined spoilers for this movie if you haven't seen it um but last year the power of the dog came out didn't love it but that's another issue <laughs> um, but it's 
heralded as this great transformation of the Western and, oh, it's doing all this, you know, work in it. And yes, there are elements in it that are not your standard fare in Western stories. There is a depiction of anguished and closeted sexuality. Like there's a lot going on there that is not in traditional Westerns. However, the overarching plot of the film and the overarching narrative is standard Western. I think I even talked about this a little bit during recommendations um, back when I was recommending a different Western that does revenge, but doesn't bother to hide it. Um, But in The Power of the Dog, literally the beginning of the movie is this young kid who is belittled and insulted. And over the course of the movie, he eventually gets violent revenge on the man who wronged him and wrongs his mother by killing him. So that element is completely unchanged from most Western stories where you will often have a hero and a villain. The villain does something to offend or wound the hero and the hero comes back and kills him. And often the hero and the villain are in some ways mirrors of each other, which again, you see in the power of the dog. So that's a whole kind of thing. But again, it's this durability of a certain kind of vengeance in storytelling that even the quote-unquote transformative version of the Western has that kind of vengeance in it. And in a different way, The Harder They Fall, which is the transformative version of the Western, I liked a lot better, no big deal, um, which basically flips the racial script of the Western and it has an almost entirely black cast, except when they visit a town of white folks called White Town. Revenge is is the driving force in that movie. They don't bother hiding it or it's less quote unquote, hidden than it would be in The Power of the Dog. But again, a lot of stuff gets transformed in that movie, but that remains a constant. And yeah, what's so fascinating in this poem is that you see almost a truer vengeance because this is the opposite of what was being presented. To to exact the kind of vengeance that we normally associate with that word would be to fall into the traps of the existing system. It would not be transformative. It would not be liberatory. There's a kind of liberation vengeance at work in this poem that I think is really, yeah, you're so right. That is such a fascinating element of it. But yeah, I mean, Westerns, superhero movies, (laughs) old guy action thrillers from the 70s to the present where some old guy is like, a woman in my life was killed and or kidnapped. I think I need to kill every Eastern European person I meet. (laughs) also maybe i'm bob odenkirk maybe i'm (laughs) liam neeson it doesn't matter i'm a white dude who's 55 to 70 years old and a woman in my life did something happen to her (laughs) i'm not gonna ask her what she wants but i'm just gonna do what i want yeah and if she died i'm not gonna bother reflecting on the fact that she might want me to continue living a normal life I'm going to dedicate myself to street justice. (laughs) Um, Amazing. No, I think that's really right. I'm curious. You mentioned that uh, there were other roads you were, you were getting sucked down. Oh, so many roads. There were oh, so many roads as the great musical poet, Robert Seeger once said, (laughs) shout out to my, what we do in the shadows. There's a great episode of what we do in the shadows where one of the vampires is talking about this human woman who he has 
occasional affairs with and he says of her she lounges in t-shirts bearing the image of musical poet robert Seeger. Seeger. <laughs> <laughs> anyway yes there are many roads um i'm curious for your thoughts on this because so we talked a little bit about the opening of the poem and i feel like a certain part of it for me hangs over the rest of the poem but this action of spitting on the flag is pretty inflammatory for a lot of folks because um, the symbolic power of the flag is something else that is huge um, and for a long time one of the many kind of culture war issues was around flag burning and its constitutionality and is that protected free speech but I think even in the last well again kind of post 9-11 there has been a growing conservative relationship to, I guess you would say, the symbol of the flag um, and a very specific kind of conservative ownership around the flag as a symbol. I remember shortly after 9-11, the feminist writer Katha Pollitt wrote a piece about how uh, for her, the American flag was an inadequate symbol since everybody, like after 9-11, everybody put out flags. Like everybody had flags on their cars. All of a sudden, car flags were something you could buy and everybody did and they put them in their car windows. Um, and like everybody hung out American flags. My dad and I took a trip around Lake Michigan and even when we were in Canada, we saw flags posted everywhere and there were messages of support for the United States. Like it was a ubiquitous symbol after 9-11 for very understandable reasons. But in in this piece that Katha Pollitt wrote, she was sort of saying like, I have trouble separating the solidarity element of what's happening now from all the stuff that was done historically in the name of this flag. Like I find it to be an inadequate symbol to express what I want to symbolically express about what's happening right now. And I think that that element of the flag is kind of a contested space and what it means to open this poem by spitting on the flag. And I think that is something about the poem that has maybe even changed since it was written and first published, particularly with, you know, Trump was running for president and he was hugging flags on stage at this point. But since then, the profusion of thin blue line flags, thin red line flags for firefighters, thin green line for military, Punisher American flags, like really different kinds of flag imagery in particularly far right wing kind of spaces i'm kind of fascinated by that and what all of that means for reading this poem and for the action of not just spitting on the flag but the the, the claiming of ownership of having spit on the flag and that action i don't know i'm curious for your thoughts on that specifically and also if you have thoughts about other writers who have made a similar move or who are thinking about the kind of contested symbolic space of the American flag? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. My first thought about the poem is that one thing that I, that I liked a lot about it and how it opened um, was that it, it was opening not with the action of spitting, but with the spit as a thing that's like on the flag and that is kind of already been put on the flag before the 
the moment of the poem in a way it's it's like more of a permanent stain on it than like i spit on you flag kind of thing i don't know that that felt powerful to me i do think you're right in terms of generally the symbol of the flag has changed has become more polarized or whatever since trump where i think before at least among like relatively privileged mostly white americans i think there was a kind of bipartisan if not full love of the flag like yeah you know sometimes we'll get it out we'll feel our fourth of july feelings or whatever or like um, the, the flag is a touchstone for sort of quote unquote true american values like in a progressive sense yeah. it would be saying you know um shocker i'm gonna bring up bruce springsteen but on his <laughs> on his 2007 album magic which a lot of it is kind of about the iraq war and you know how it's bad um one of the songs says the flag flying over the courthouse means certain things are set in stone who we are what we'll do and what we won't and that's really trying to call on a certain version of american values and saying like hey maybe uh rendition and torture are things we shouldn't do um, <laughs> and it's kind of calling to the symbol of the flag is like uh remember what we're supposed to be about like you know life liberty pursuit of happiness ringing any bells for anyone uh you know habeas corpus <laughs> eighth amendment kind of stuff anybody no anyone um <laughs> but i think there's a lot less that move doesn't happen now yeah and i think you're right there's more of an understanding of perhaps like a permanent stain on the flag that makes it unpalatable to make that move for good reason <laughs> yeah right right i don't have any affection for it and i mostly find it jarring to see in public um, when I'm not expecting it. Um, I think not that that's like what the interesting thing is, but I think like kind of what it is about is to me, it does go back to the, the reveal versus the change. And I think there's like something that has always felt strange. And it's interesting because I, I think about it a lot in terms of in my day job i like edit kids school library books and so we do like history and some of it is like u.s history and like about presidents and stuff and it's like um you know when you're when you're writing those books or editing them you know you have to assume it's like okay maybe this reader has heard about thomas jefferson but doesn't know anything about him so like what's the basic information that they need to know about Thomas Jefferson. And it's like, are you going to open with <laughs> hello? This is Thomas Jefferson, the third president. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he had more than 600 people. enslaved people yeah. of African descent, you know? Right. Um, I think there's what I think is been very strange. Sometimes it feels like what people are gesturing towards when they're like the true American values that are progressive, you know, and like, I think this is the gesture that Obama made um, often in an inspiring way. And that what um, Biden talks about when he talks about like restoring the soul of America or whatever, is that there's all the bad stuff 
<laughs> you know, the evil putrid stuff was aberrant or an accident of things that just went wrong and hadn't been corrected and weren't true to the country as it was intended or whatever. Yeah, I just that stuff feels weird to me because it seems like it was pretty central to the core of the country. And like, sure, you can say Jefferson had conflicted feelings about it. You know, he wrote about liberty, but he had, you know, was a slaveholder. But like enslaved black people often didn't have conflicted feelings about slavery. You know what I mean? And so I think the the conflict that is sort of centered when when it's talked about that way is always centering the kind of like white guy with power who feels weird about where the power comes from. And and who, in fact, with a group of other wealthy white landowners, <laughs> many of whom also owned human beings, wrote legal documents that literally said those folks were less than a full person. Yeah, right. Like it's, exactly. It's in the fact that that's. And that is the challenge, like it's in the founding documents. But I think in a lot of ways, you know, we, we talk about kind of national religion and in a lot of ways it is like other religions where you look at these documents and in the case of the United States, um, something I remember saying in some version and, you know, occasionally cringe about, uh, though it's it's not untrue, I just don't know if I'd say it this way now is uh, in our first episode talking about how there's still like a lot of things about the United States to recommend it. And I do think that's broadly true in a lot of ways, but it's also not. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things to not recommend it. I mean, there's a reason that people come from other countries and want to live here. You know, like there's a lot of things that the U.S. does. And handily, it has founding documents that you can point to and say, you're not living up to this the same way that you can look at the social gospel of Christianity and look at the actions taken by people who purport to do things in the name of Christ and say, hold on, which Christ are you reading about? Because I'm not quite sure where he said only people who work should get, you know, stuff or whatever. And and I think that obviously there's all the complications there because those religious texts also have a bunch of awful stuff in them. But they are also something you can point to and say, maybe they're calling on us to do better. And I can understand getting there with the founding documents, but at the same time, you can't deny what is baked into the country because the very founding of the country is a violent, exploitative act. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think, I think like two, two more thoughts, I think. One is like to have an honest conversation about what the flag could mean, um, I think requires a full reckoning of what it has meant. And I think it's it's something I think we actually talked about a little bit on our episode about um, angels in America. And one thing that's so interesting about that play is that it's it is kind of attempting to reckon with kind of like and have a positive 
in a constructive way, not necessarily like good, but like positive as in this is what America is or could be or something. Um, and in doing so, it, it tries to reckon with all of the the evilness that's there. And I think to me, it's like I'm still learning about <laughs> uh, like I've spent a lot of time like reading about the bad shit that like the U.S. has done. And I'm still like being like, oh, my God, we did that. What the fuck? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's like and and then when I think about like where a lot of people are at, it's like, yeah, I don't know. There's just so little um, education about it. Um, and even the fact of like saying you know, there was a recent hubbub at like Monticello about Thomas Jefferson and like the fact that he had a lot of like enslaved people. Um, and like, it's still a thing where it's like, he was a rich ass person and dependent <laughs> on slavery for his wealth. And that wasn't incidental to who he was anyway, but that's still like not um, anyway. So Partly what I'm what I'm just saying is like to even come close to being able to be like, OK, what can what could this country be? It's like we got to lay out the facts. And I just I don't think certainly the country as a whole isn't there yet. And and I think it also explains why there is such a furor on the right about like, quote unquote, CRT. Um, which is just like it is about suppressing education about those things because <laughs> I mean, well, for a lot of reasons, but it reflects poorly <laughs> on the national project. And then I think the other thought that I have is just it's sort of um, tangential, but I was just listening to another podcast. I had been oh, I'd been so good, Jack. Sarita told me like two months ago, you know, you need to stop listening to all these depressing <laughs> political podcasts. They're making you sad and embittered and angry. And, I, and angry and it's not going anywhere. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, so I, mean, I like, I, I, I agree with her. <laughs> yeah, no, she was right. And I did put the kibosh on it for a while. I did do good. And then I ran out of episodes of a certain number of podcasts that I will be recommending later because <laughs> they're more fun. But then I, I ran out, and so I kind of started crawling back to the things that make me angry. And so I was listening to a recent uh, Ezra Klein podcast, and he had um, Felicia Wong, who's, who's the kind of the uh, heads the Roosevelt Institute, which is like a progressive think tank. And it was kind of about like, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, crazy name, um, the CHIPS Act, and sort of all this stuff. And, it, you know, it, it was what it was. Um, but there was this thing where he was saying, like, you know, it's interesting when we think about because they were sort of talking about how, like, the point of chips is it's a kind of industrial policy that's like, OK, we need to manufacture superconductors and like the government can take a proactive sort of measure and investment into like building up new sectors of the economy or whatever um and and like and then as part of that discussion they were like often this has happened like 
through basically defense spending. So like in World War II, like people, you know, were like, okay, we're going to build all these blah, blah, blah weapons and stuff. And then as kind of like after effects or whatever, um, we've developed new technologies that then can have commercial applications and then reach the general public, um, you know, or lead to new discoveries, et cetera. And which, you know, is what, I mean, it's probably more complicated than that. But anyway, along that discussion, he was, Ezra Klein said something like, you know, it's, it's interesting that we're at our most collectivist kind of when we're thinking about like defense spending and that we don't, you know, all this like bullshit about like, was this program like efficiently allotting its money and was it means tested properly and all this like no blah 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 it's like I'm no one guessing, gives a sh- yeah no like no the one joint, care the, the joint strike fighter program yeah is like the biggest fiasco literally when it's defense they're just burning money they're they're throwing it into a tub they're they're lighting it on fire again. I mean, it's just like they do whatever they want. No one cares. And kind of like uh, police spending. It's exactly like police spending. And he was kind of like and he said it in this like was like on the one hand, a way that I would I in one way it resonated because I was like, OK, like, yes, it would be nice if we approach like public education and healthcare in the way we approach defense spending, which is like. Who gives a shit if we waste a few dollars? This is the most important stuff. Throw a bunch of money at teachers and nurses. They're good. And that made sense to me. But then he was like, it's interesting, like with the CHIPS Act, you know, like it was very bipartisan and there was a kind of a national purpose that revolved around it. And I was like, that's weird that you're going to leave it there, basically. And then Felicia Wong was like, well, and I wish he got into it more because she was like what she didn't say, but kind of subtextually said, which is what other people have said is like the, well, no, she's, she did mention it, but it's like, it was all framed around competing with China and like being this global power struggle. And like Taiwan has the superconductor capacity and they're under threat of China and la, 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 la. And that unites the thing. And I'm like, if that's the national purpose, I don't want that. Like if we're, if our, if the way we get it united, sound like much of a purpose. Yeah. If the way we get united is by demonizing a country that's already facing like its diaspora and immigrant populations in the U S are already facing rising levels of like anti Chinese and Asian violence. I don't know. Like, I don't want a big war with China, which is like, I don't know how this connects, but I'm like the, the way that, people have gestured toward national unity is like with a deep violent disunity with the rest of the fucking world and i'm like no i don't want that when often that comes with (sighs) even a disunity within the country because the 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 continual recent reference point for many folks around national unity and for some reason i was really noticing it this year in people's posts on the anniversary is 9-11 And there's always some version of a gesture towards it. But I really it stuck out to me how many folks had some version of a time when we all came together. And, oh, I really wish that 
that would happen again or whatever. And yes, number one, it is this externally focused violence uh, and its unity around a perceived uh, existential threat. I think that's kind of why that comes together so readily around defense spending and everything. There's this way to make some version of a threat very real when, of course, bigger threats facing us might be an ongoing pandemic, climate change, lack of education, lack of housing, lack of health care. Like, are these the things that are actually killing our citizens en masse? Oh, they are. Fascinating. Gun violence. You know, like this again, you know, the information's all there, whatever. But even the post 9-11 moment left out a lot of folks. Yeah. There were a lot of people who did not see themselves in the flag or the revenge that was being enacted under it. And that, I think, is, again, to your point about how this poem opens, yes, the speaker claims ownership over the spit on the country's flag, but the spit's already there. There is this element to the flag that can't be washed away and has this flavor of the eternal to it, which I think is a really interesting part. I'm also interested in kind of along those lines in terms of always been there or durability of something, this section about ghosts. I am led by the ghosts still awake in the soil, still thirsty from below. I'm curious for your thoughts on that. And then also the fact that it leads into what is to me, maybe the most puzzling little bit of the poem where it says the fear is under my heel now and heel is H E A L heel. What's, What's up with these ghosts? <laughs> yeah, the thing that I immediately thought of was uh, the very end of Beloved, actually, um, the which is the novel by Toni Morrison, which is a ghost story. Um, and the end is like, you know, kind of about it's sort of like an epilogue to the story and kind of like it's an amazing ending. And so it has this repeating part that's like, it was not a story to pass on. Um, it was not a story to pass on. So they forgot her. Like an unpleasant dream during a troubling sleep. Occasionally, however, the rustle of a skirt hushes when they wake and the knuckles brushing a cheek in sleep seem to belong to the sleeper. Sometimes the photograph of a close friend or relative looked at too long shifts and something more familiar than the dear face itself moves there. They can touch it if they like, but don't because they know things will never be the same if they do. This is not a story to pass on. Down by the stream and back of 124, her footprints come and go, come and go. They are so familiar. Should a child, an adult, place his feet in them, they will fit. Take them out and they disappear again, as though nobody ever walked there. By and by, all trace is gone. And what is forgotten is not only the footprints, but the water too, and what is down there. The rest is weather, not the breath of the disremembered and unaccounted for, but wind in the eaves or spring ice thawing too quickly, just weather. Certainly no clamor for a kiss, beloved. Which, there's a lot there, and obviously, and I feel like I, we might have even 
referenced i'm sure we've referenced beloved before and maybe even read the ending <laughs> um because it's so good and it haunts me but i mean there there you have the the premise of the whole novel um which is uh inspired by a true story is that a black woman who had escaped up north kills her own child uh rather than let the child be returned back to slavery when slave catchers come. Um, and so then in the novel, the the ghost of the child basically haunts the the mother um, and the family and the house. And I and I and this kind of the end of the novel is, I think, a gesture of of bringing the whole story sort of into the present as a as a ghost story that continues to haunt um and i i just i think about that and i think that it is it is also not to like keep saying the same thing but that sort of reveal versus change it has that ghostliness to it where it's this it's this deliberately forgotten aspect of history and of the present where it's like oh that's not really what we're about then it's kind of ghostly in the way that it's present because it's sort of not acknowledged um and it's killed but it's like still there um and so i i feel like the speaker is kind of the movement in this poem is like how does the speaker get from the beginning where it's like okay i have the spit on the flag and i'm not weeping but it's like, where do I go from here? Um, and how do I get to all the living after this as the vengeance? And I feel like there's this kind of movement in the middle of the poem that begins with like, I let the rage be like water this time, drinking and drinking until my darkness marries my eyes to blindness. And, I am, and then it's this part that you're bringing up and I am led by the ghosts still awake in the soil, still thirsty from below. The fear is under my heel. Now there are multitudes in my third rib and we are not asking anymore. Do you see us now? And so then all of a sudden we're at this point. And I feel like there's this kind of like, you know, because the, the speaker, obviously Sasha Banks, you know, as a black woman is part of the the history and present that America is trying to either destroy or forget or both um, that in kind of traveling to this future where there can be some kind of liberation, she is letting herself be led by, I don't know, like these ghosts still awake in the soil. I just, I think about like, the ghosts like in beloved or you know like the insistent present of like black americans past and present who are like still thirsty and in that way i kind of i feel because it's interesting you know then from below this the other point that you were talking about from below the fear is under my heel now there's that pun it's kind of the it's interesting because yeah it's the only double meaning pun in the poem where it sounds like in the phrasing, you want to think of the foot heel, 
which connects to the image of like the soil, like the ghosts that are in the soil. And, and I, then I'm like, okay, your heel of the foot is on the ground and like, that's kind of touching it. But then I'm like thinking about, this is a tangent again, but I think it connects. It is like fear and anger. Uh, something that Sarita has said, who's uh, very um, learned in the ways of social work and in what the force? No, not fear in the leads to anger. Anger leads to hate and hate leads to suffering. Connor. <laughs> oh my God. Well, she's never seen star Wars. So, Oh wait, no, she did finally. Cause she was babysitting. Uh, but I don't think she really was watching it. Well, so... and which one did she see? A few, I think the originals. Yeah. Okay. Um, Interesting. Anyway, social worker. She right now she's working on therapist. Has studied a lot about emotions, psychology, all this stuff. Anyway, anger is often considered a secondary emotion in that there is a, usually a primary emotion that is either or both maybe fear or sadness that then kind of becomes that the anger is about. So like a very generic example is like you're on the road, you're driving, someone swerves ahead of you and like you narrowly avoid getting into a car accident. You, you get pissed, but really what happened is like you got scared because you're almost in a dangerous situation. And then you get angry about the fact that what you were in was a scary thing. Anyway, I was thinking about that a little bit because because I think there's this kind of vengeance and this anger that is very important to this poem. Um, but there's also, you know, mentioned thirsty from below. The fear is under my heel now because it, it's also a fear for one's own life or one's own livelihood either in a very direct way, like if I get pulled over by the police, if I'm a, a black person in this country, are they going to kill me? Or just like, am I going to wake up one day and someone I know or a family member or whatever has been hurt in some way? Um, there is a real, a sort of like reasonable fear that courses through much of black communities in this country because of how severe and intense and violent white supremacy is like that's just the basic fact is it it's reasonable to be afraid and then what happens is like and this shows up not to like medicalize the poem but this shows up like in the body like chron levels of chronic stress are much higher disproportionately in communities of color, especially black communities. There's also this anger of like, one should not have to live in fear all the time, you know? So like when I see that from below the fear is under my heel now, like the speaker is trying to heal, trying to reach a different place. And I think part of that involves letting the fear go in some kind of way in the poem anyway at least that's like one way that i can read that line is like when i'm being like when i'm letting my rage <laughs> be like water and i drink and drink until my darkness marries my eyes to blindness um and i'm kind of like drinking myself into this fugue state almost um then the ghosts of like 
black America are leading me. I'm being led somewhere like through that process. The speaker can like put her fear both like under her feet, but also like below the healing, like the healing is going to cover it in a way. Like once that process has happened or is happening, then we can get to that final moment in the poem. That's like, this is the last kindness. We will have your sweat and dress you in your own curses. All the living after this will be the vengeance. I don't know. Does that, that's the thought I have. <laughs> yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Again, the, this notion of fear is a kind of an underlying potential cause for anger or whatever. And there is this kinship between the speaker and these ghosts because the thirsty ghosts come right after the speaker is talking about, I let the rage be like water this time, drinking and drinking until my darkness marries my eyes to blindness. As you're saying, you kind of drink yourself into a stupor, but also you can, you know, it's almost the blindness of sleep and death in a way. And and there is this absolute sense that there's a complex kinship going on there between the two. And it's, I think, further complicated by, okay, so these are both drinking images, but there is the previous call to the mouth of the country and what it does. And this being a response to that in a lot of ways, the direct, in some ways, mirror of that. Okay, the nation is trying to suck the muscle from every dark body, and I am trying to replenish with water. You know, my rage is this replenishing thing that keeps me from disappearing into the void the country is trying to create of me. Okay, these ghosts may have been overtaken, but they're still thirsty too. They still have the same desires and indeed as it says i am led by the ghosts and so while they go unnamed i think we can imagine who some of the ghosts inspiring action might be these ghosts that are still thirsty that maybe articulated similar visions for a liberatory future and had their lives cut short i think there is an element of that there as well again possibly in that kind of progressive tradition of John Brown's body's moldering in the grave, but his truth is marching on. I thought I saw Joe Hill last night and he says, don't mourn, organize. Like there is that, I think maybe an underlying element too, in saying, you know, there are multitudes in my third rib. There's the biblical kind of call there for, I guess, life getting made out of a rib, but also, you know, carrying these multitudes within one not just the the multitudes that are the present day multitudes but also the multitudes past that can be carried forward yeah and the the multitudes i think about whitman um yeah for and sure. like a kind of you know his famous i contain multitudes and um and that being about america itself and you know, this poem being America mine and this kind of like, I don't know, a sort of a writing against uh, maybe that Whitman vision. Um, yeah. Should we read it again? Yeah, let's do it again. This is America mine by Sasha Banks. 
The spit upon this country's flag is mine, and I do not weep at it. Consider the twisted shape of grief about the mouth upon learning the beast under the bed has always been your country. Careful, citizen. This nation will name you daughter, while its tongue sucks the muscle from every dark body you have loved to the edge of this vanished second. I let the rage be like water this time, drinking and drinking until my darkness marries my eyes to blindness, and I am led by the ghosts, still awake in the soil, still thirsty from below. The fear is under my heel now. There are multitudes in my third rib, and we are not asking any more. Do you see us now? This is the last kindness. We will have your sweat and dress you in your own curses. O country, what I mean to say is all the living after this will be the vengeance. So, Jack. Yes, Connor. Let's cut to the chase. What recommendations do you have for me this time around? What have you been reading, listening to, watching, absorbing lately? Well, uh, one second, because I want to make sure I get the author's name right. Boom. Boom. Okay. So, first of all, I've been reading a book called The Appalachian Trail, A Biography by Philip Denieri. And... Bennington is about four miles from an opening onto the Appalachian Trail, which goes all the way from Georgia to Maine and passes not far from here in Vermont and uh, sometimes crossing the Long Trail, which is in Vermont and is, in fact, I believe, the oldest long distance hiking and backpacking trail in the United States. But this book basically tells the story of the Appalachian Trail through the lives of, I believe it's 12 different people who were important to it in different ways at different points in time. Um, so, for example, the first chapter is about uh, the guy who first mapped the uh, Appalachian Mountains in their entirety and who basically to do so had to like scale every peak in them and take lots of notes. His name is Arnold Goyot. G-U-Y-O-T, who was from Switzerland and is like a fascinating natural scientist guy. He had, so just to give you a little flavor of him, he was, it's interesting, he's sort of a contemporary of Darwin a little bit and he was thinking along similar lines, but he was like more of a religiously inclined guy. And so he was, I think he kind of tends towards something that we would now identify as like intelligent design. He's like, yeah, evolution's happening, but there's, you know, a watchmaker creator kind of situation going on where he's winding up the springs and it's all God's design, but maybe we're understanding better how it works. Um, but he had, there's this great quote that was in the chapter that I wrote out, um, which is something that you might expect to see, you know, angels and demons, Dan Brown, has got a Pope and he's all about, yeah, using antimatter to <laughs> blow up the Vatican to show that science and religion can hang out. Hell um, yeah. Yeah. So here's what the guy who mapped the Appalachian Mountains says. Let us not ask from science the knowledge it can never give, nor seek from the Bible the science which it does not intend to teach. Ooh. Yeah, dude. 
yeah, dude, guess what? If you're not interested in testable theories about the universe, maybe don't get into science. And if you want to talk about the word of God, maybe don't try and make a scientifically testable hypothesis out of it. <laughs> anyway, learning about, yeah. The, yeah, learning about the Appalachian Trail and... Uh, yeah, there's other figures in here. There's a, a woman who hiked the trail a whole bunch of times who's kind of this legendary figure in the Appalachian Trail community. And there's a whole community that's built up around the trail over the years because it is the most popular long-distance trail for folks to hike on. Literally millions of people hike sections of it or all of it every year. And there's a whole uh, like community around folks who do what's called through hiking, which is where you start in Georgia and you end in Maine. And it takes about six months and it's 2,900 miles and there are houses set up along the way where like folks who live near the trail will let hikers camp in their yard and they make them breakfast and maybe some folks leave a donation, but they don't ask for payment. And there's there's all kinds of stuff like that around these kind of long distance hiking communities, because it is this element of folks who are living obviously kind of on the edge of society, but also a little bit on the, you know, it's not a particularly dangerous trail. Um but it's like, you know, you, you only have as much food as you pack with you. And so you may need to borrow some from someone or you may lend to somebody who needs it. Like there's a very kind of communal atmosphere and there's a lot of camaraderie around hiking and especially through hiking and the trail. So it's been cool to to learn more about how that kind of works and to hear a lot of stories about a community and uh, an aspect of life that is a pretty big deal that a lot of people do uh, that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily know about and also where it seems like kindness and like communal understandings of like safety and resource allotment and whatever um, is like the norm. Uh, that's been really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And then I've also been watching on YouTube because YouTube has everything. The Amoeba Records series of What's in My Bag, where people <laughs> go to Amoeba Records and then they tell you what they are going to buy. Uh, nice. And it's cool because it's like, huh, I wonder what these musicians are into. Or actors. Like, turns out Jason Manzukis is really into street music from around the world. So he's like, oh, hey, here's this like Moroccan street music oh, record cool. that i found and he talks about how his like his life's like crowning moment would be if he came across amazing street musicians like in you know molly or wherever <laughs> um, but oh, apparently he's awesome. super into like bootleg street music <laughs> recordings <laughs> um, so yeah. like yeah and then obviously like you also find out the names of the records and the artists and stuff so it's it's always really interesting because it's you know, it's the musicians that other musicians are listening to or thinking about for whatever reason. Um, so it's a it's a cool way to get recommendations, but it's also just a cool way to kind of, even if it's not a musician or a group that you're going to find out more about, it's a chance to kind of hear somebody tell you a little bit about them. Um, and they've been running this series in various forms for like 13 years or something at this point. Like they started doing it in the pretty early days of YouTube. Wow. Uh, so there are a lot of them. <laughs> Haven't watched them all. Uh, the older ones are a lot shorter. <laughs> You'll get there. You'll get there. But, yeah, maybe someday. Uh, but either way, yeah. What's in my bag from Amoeba Records? Just interesting stuff. What about you? What you got going on? 
Oh, man. Well, as I alluded to on this episode, I took a hiatus from depressing lefty political podcasts at the recommendation of my loving wife and partner, Sarita. And I had to report that it was a good decision. But basically, I what that meant was I listened to nearly the entirety of two podcasts that are similar. One is older that I was catching up on that I had been meaning to listen to. You're Wrong About, which is an amazing podcast, and I highly recommend it. Um, it is with Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall, and they talk about things from the past that you misremembered or society or media got wrong, and a lot of it has to do with maligned women, true crime, um, the mix of the two, things like that. Um, it's very fun because, you know, one of them does all the research, the other one goes in fresh uh, and they kind of explain it to the other and then kind of react. And um, I don't know, they're very like thoughtful, reflective people. And it's a really interesting. Yeah, like some of them are one off episodes that are like, um, you know, like Enron or whatever. And Dude, then they... I watched a documentary about Enron recently. It's crazy. Yeah, so some some are just like kind of one-off episodes, but they also have um they've done 15 episodes so far on the OJ Simpson trial. Oh my god. Um and very sporadically and it's very funny because so I think it started in 2018 the podcast, then in like August of 21 or something like that. Michael Hobbs actually left the podcast. Sarah Marshall has continued to host it. Um, I particularly love the ones with both of them because they have a very good rapport. But I think he's going to come back for some guest episodes to do more of the OJ because it was this thing where they they it was a very um, after the end of 15 episodes, they were at the grand jury of the trial. So they right. really didn't get very far, but they covered a lot of ground. So there's still parts, a lot of the trial to be dissected anyway. Um, but the other podcast that is similar is um, maintenance phase, which also it has Michael Hobbs um, as a co-host and then also Aubrey Gordon um, as the other co-host. And it's similar kind of style um, as you're wrong about, but the focus is primarily um, like wellness and dieting and kind of like junk fad diet culture, science industry stuff. Um, Tell me and about keto. Yeah, it's bullshit. Here's the, so <laughs> the new King Arthur flower catalog came recently uh -oh. and both of my parents independently while looking through it asked me, what is keto? <laughs> Yeah, well, they have an episode on keto. Um, some of them are like on those diets. Some of the episodes are on like general kind of like concepts, like like the science behind calories. And some of them are like about like famous 
you know, wellness influencers and shit like that, which is also they usually have some some wild rise and falls. And it, it also does it's, you know, some of them like they're, you know, there's like they do content warnings where relevant and a lot of it can be difficult to listen to because it it involves a lot of, you know, talk about disordered eating and things like that and fat phobia. But I think they just do they do a very good job. Yeah, just like breaking down a lot of that stuff in a way that's fascinating and fun, but also like intense in the ways that it needs to be. So both you're wrong about and maintenance phase. They are both excellent podcasts in their almost entirety, which I can say since I have recently listened to most of their episodes. <laughs> <laughs> On the subject of uh, maintenance phase and fitness influencers and a total lack of information, have they ever in any way brought up a gentleman named Eric Bugenhagen? Ooh, no. Rick De La Stick, Sticky Ricky with his golden tidbits. Okay, no, definitely <laughs> okay. not. Connor, Wait, we need to recommend this. I'm going, well, here's the thing. It's information free. I mean, he says a lot of things, but like, don't do anything he tells you to do. Um, well, yeah, that's. Here, so I'm just going to read you a couple of video titles from The Boogs, as he's known. <laughs> New experiment to attain grotesque. <laughs> Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> New experiment to attain. <laughs> New ex... Oh, my God. You can't finish it. New experiment to attain grotesque horse arms. <laughs> oh, no. Daughter finally destroys superhuman father in competition. Oh, wow. This one. <laughs> This will make you a horse. What? <laughs> Wait, send me send me this name. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask them to, to monster talk crushes about it. fat grip cucumber. Um, basically, there he makes a lot of short videos on YouTube of himself screaming and lifting things, <laughs> and that's about it. And okay. occasionally he'll have these completely unedited eight to twelve minute videos where he talks about some very specific thing that he's doing related to weightlifting. So okay. he'll get there and be like, Sticky Ricky reporting in with another golden tidbit. Oh I'm out God. here at the gym and I'm getting fat, juicy, succulent gains. And you know what I'm doing? I'm putting fat grips on everything. Fat grips on the barbell, fat grips on the dumbbell, fat grip pull-ups. So I can get my grotesque horse arms growing, getting my juicy pumps. And he's just like, <laughs> he's, complete, he's in, the, in some version of professional wrestling. This is co-host Jack Rossiter Munley. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review. Five stars, maybe? Those reviews help with the algorithm and are a great way for us to find new listeners. And you can put anything in them. You can write whatever you want. You can just say, oh, this is a good podcast. I like this podcast. You could be like, hey, that Connor guy, he makes a lot of good points. Uh, Jack, why is he doing this outro so long? You know, get him off the mic. And whatever you feel like writing, head on over there, five stars, drop in the review. 
Uh, do you have thoughts about this poem? Is there a poem or poet you'd like us to cover on a future episode? Well, we'd love to hear from you. And there are tons of ways that you can get in touch with us. I mean, I guess you could drop it into an iTunes review. You could be like, five stars. Hey, why don't you talk about insert name of poet here? Um, but you can also send us an email. That's probably the best way to do it. Close talking poetry at gmail.com is our email address. Or you can find us on Twitter. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. And the show is at Close Talking. On Instagram, you can find us there too. Uh, we are at Close Talking Poetry. And we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. We haven't gotten to TikTok yet and we might never who knows anything is anything is possible um speaking of all those social media platforms a very special thank you to our incredible social media manager Corey china who keeps us active across the internet and a thank you to all of you for listening we will see you next time